Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. We're never going to get the kind of relationships where we want, where we feel seen and supported using the tools that tell us to erase somebody's truth for them. We're not screwed here. Like there are skills, there are tools that we can use. There are ways that we can learn to communicate and relate that actually let us deliver our good intentions. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I am honored to have Megan Devine, who is a best-selling author, a psychotherapist, and grief advocate. And, you know, in my time of getting to chat with you, I'd also say very funny. Is that a setup? Thank you. So now you have to be funny. I have to be funny. It's required. You know, Matt and I used to have a running joke. I would tell him that I was funny all the time, and he's like, babe, you're the only one in the world that thinks that. So now anytime somebody tells me that I'm funny, I'm like, I look to the ethers and I'm like, see, I, like, see I am funny. I am funny. You are funny. I appreciate your sense of humor so much. And, <laughs> um, you know, we were connected by uh, the wonderful Dr. Alexandra Salman, who is uh, such a connector. I feel like she knows everybody. She really is. She really is. She's a magical being and um, grateful to be connected. I know you've also, you're the, the best-selling author of the book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I thought maybe we could start with really what brought you into the work of grief and, and why you felt the need to change maybe the message or, or contribute in a different way to the message around grief. Yeah. So origin stories. I was a psychotherapist in private practice for about 10 years. I did a lot of trauma work, a lot of work with women who were sort of, you know, in their 30s and 40s and realizing that this was not the life they wanted to live in. I worked with a lot of doctors and activists who felt like there was nowhere else they could talk about what they saw on a daily basis. So I felt pretty confident in dealing with really difficult things. But I was tired and I was tired of sitting and listening and sitting and listening. I was starting to feel like a talking head, um, just a disembodied kind voice in a chair. So I was talking with my partner about needing to take a step back from the work and he was going to take over financial support of our family so that I could close my practice and and do the good therapist work of like, take a step back and reflect and ask yourself some real questions, you know, really really take some time to to honor my displeasure is the wrong word, but disenchantment. 
with what I was doing and listen for what was next. And we never got a chance to do that because two days after that conversation, Matt drowned. Yeah. Now I tell this story with that kind of cadence because you don't see it coming. You have like this hope for your moment and then... And then boom, here's this, well, that's a twist in the story. And that destroyed me. That destroyed me. Matt was an amazing athlete. Uh, We used to joke that he was half mountain goat. He could run up rock walls like Spider-Man. Just such an accomplished physical athlete. And his death was a freak accident. And I quit my work that day. I had, um, you know, when he was lost in the river while the wardens were searching for him, they said, you have to call your best friend. You can't be here alone. And I was like, you're looking for my best friend. He's in the water somewhere. So I literally went through the the list of contacts in my phone and just kept calling until somebody picked up. And it was a friend of mine who was also a colleague of mine at a different agency. So she was at the riverside with me. And when the warden came over and said, we found him and he's dead, I looked at her and I said, I quit. You you have to call everyone and tell them I'm never talking to anyone again. And I I did. I quit. I stopped working with clients. I never saw those clients I was working with again. I actually went and volunteered on uh, a farm for two years because I couldn't handle people. The animals don't care if you're sobbing into their flanks. Like the They don't care. And honestly, the thought of going back into the counseling office and talking about mundane and ordinary struggles, I was just like that. I was orders of magnitude removed from that. And there was no no way that I could go back. And, you know, here I am 13 years later and, you know, a therapist and I specialize in grief and I, and I speak and talk and educate and train. So clearly I did go back. And the, the reason for that is what I experienced as a grieving person. I mean, part of it was I kind of like to front load the really pissy parts first. So there were some people who were just mean-spirited jerks, right? Like some people were just assholes in the things that they said to me. But some people, you know, the majority of the people were very well-meaning. But the things that they said to me made things so much worse. You know, the the night of Matt's funeral, which was just six days after he drowned, people were coming up to me and saying, you know, you're you're young and you're beautiful and you're smart. You'll get married again really soon. Wow. Six days later, yeah. Six days, yeah, as though that was the the thing I was struggling. Like, I was already thinking about that. Yeah, you know, it was on my list. Installed Tinder. Right? Like, I had it ready to go just in case. (laughs) I would be at, like, a coffee shop. Uh, Matt and I met at a coffee shop, and so I would be hanging out there, you know, after he died, like, okay, wait a second. He was here, right? Like, this, our life evaporated in a second, but I had to be places where I could remember that we actually were. And I could hear people say things like, she must not be a very good feminist if she's this upset over the loss of a man. Right? I tell that story and everybody makes a face, but I was not the only woman who heard that from her community after their male partner died. Like, what the hell is that? That's just Um, so twisted. So your grief was actually a sign of your lack of independence as if a man is that important to a woman. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I was also told that um, I must not have been a very good therapist before this happened if I couldn't manage to calm myself down and find the gift in the situation. Just the bullshit that people would say about this stuff. You know, I, I was telling this story to somebody the other day that like three months after Matt died, I ran into somebody who knew what happened. They'd been at the funeral 
I ran into somebody, you know, a, a, one of those loose ties that we talk about. And they said, hey, how's it going? And I was like, not that great, actually. And they were like, why? What's the matter? It's like, uh, Matt died? And they were like, oh, still? That's still bugging you? Like, what? X, I'm sorry, what is happening here? So the just the well-meaning and unintentionally cruel way that we talk to grieving people. Now, the well-intentioned people were doing what they'd been taught. Yeah, I was going to ask what the pathology was to this. If you think about the ways that we talk about grief in this culture, in news stories, the medical model, in entertainment, right? Like you think about the trope of the, the grumpy old widower, right? He's grumpy because he refuses to let love back into his life again. And as soon as he accepts his first wife's death, he starts to date again and then everybody is happy, right? The message that that gives is your job as a support person, a friend or a family member is to get your person right back out there, make them bounce back, make them find fulfillment again. Like they're not supposed to be sad for very long. It's supposed to be over, right? So we're really told that the best thing to do for somebody going through a hard time is get them out of that hard time. And get them into a relationship because that's the sign that they've they've moved on. Obviously, right? Like everybody has to be partnered. If you're not partnered, you're not healthy. You're not valuable. Yeah. You're not valuable, right? The other thing that I heard predominantly, especially like the day of the funeral and at the memorial and usually whenever I ran into anybody was, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that this happened, but it's going to make you such a good therapist. You're going to help so many people out of this. Now, let's talk about how many ways that statement is wrong, right? First, there is, you're going to be such a good therapist because your partner died. What that says is I wasn't a good therapist before he died. And I needed him to die in order to become valuable. Uh, and your value lives in that. Your value lives in, my value lives in my ability to be a, a good provider, of services to others, right? So one, I wasn't good enough before and I needed something like this to happen in order to be good. And the other thing is like, what kind of bullshit is that, that a person with his own life and his own path and his own hopes and dreams had to be sacrificed in order for me to be a good servant of others? Like, what is that? It's so yeah. bizarre. I learned a lot from you the first time we spoke. I really enjoyed the conversation. I remember you sharing all the things you'd created from, you know, learning all of through mm -hmm. the process of going through grief. And I remember saying to you, it is really beautiful what you've turned, you know, this into. And you said, yeah, but I would never have wanted, like essentially saying like, that I would trade it all to have Matt back like that. And that really gave, I really appreciated your response because it made me reflect on my response to your grief and your experience by wanting to turn it into look at the positive outcome that had a really profound impact on me. So I appreciate that because yeah. there's certain truths that you can't know unless you're in your circumstances and I think like you pointed out, you know, we're sort of doing the things we're taught or responding to grief in the way society responds to grief, which is get out of it. Like as soon as you touch it, move through it. And then if you move through it, then there you found the gift, like you were saying about the value of you as a therapist. We often try to save people from feelings we don't know the value of. Like I, I think about that a lot because in the grief that I experienced from when my fiance and I broke up previously 
was so profound, but it was so, I don't know, there was something about it. You know, we were talking before we hit record about sort of how the medical world responds to grief. And and we can, of course, get into that. But, you know, what I found was that the, like grief in some way just made me pay attention to more of the actual grief that's in the world. I I don't know until I accessed it so deeply myself because I didn't have a choice. Then all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, there's like so much to be sad about. (laughs) There is so much to be sad about. And I think like you bring up a really good point here. It's not that there are no, I'm even hesitant to use this language. It's not that there are no gifts inside grief. It's not that you don't learn anything. It's like, what is the expectation? So you just described, there were things that I discovered in the depths of my pain that I'm really thankful I saw. Choosing that and finding that and owning that for yourself is beautiful. Now, if we flip that and you're in pain and I come to you and I say, babe, you got to look for the gift. Find the silver lining in this. You got to learn your lesson. You only needed this because you needed to learn a lesson about what's really important in life and how much pain there is in the world. Like me telling you why you're having this experience, what you need to learn from it, and you better turn around and have some gifts out of this. That's a very different story. However you experience what you're living is right. It's when we come from the outside and we prescribe things. We say, you have to turn this into a gift. You have to find the silver lining. Look, some things just suck. It's more homework. And some things just flat out suck, right? There is not a silver lining in things. You'll find, you might learn something from it, how to process grief and not dismiss people, you know, in their grief. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I I have two friends right now who are under 50, one of them dying of cancer, one of them hopefully surviving it. Like that just sucks. There's no silver lining in that. There's no transformation porn in that. Like there's no, it's not an inspiration. It's just crappy, right? And I think we just, we just are so uncomfortable letting things be bad, right? There's just this real desperation to make things have a happy ending. And the reality is that not everything has a happy ending. Do you think that's due to sort of the underlying thread of all movies being, you know, the hero's journey? Oh, yeah. I mean, even Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is about like, you know, superhero you have hopes in, faces adversity, we all lose hope, superhero loses hope. And then boom, transformation, uh, transformational porn. I'm going to definitely use that again. Uh, Yeah. Do you think it's due to sort of how we model? I think of even that movie Love Actually, which I found that movie really actually not very love filled, but one of the scenes is a guy who is widowed and then, you know, finds love and blah, blah. Like, do you think it is due to the underlying thread that we have about the expectation of human, you know, humans in their story. Yeah. And I mean, it certainly predates Joseph Campbell, right? The, that whole hero's journey is a hero is a journey of transformation, right? Like the hero is going on with their life. They're just like, do, 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 do. And then something terrible happens and causes them to go on a journey. The journey is full of dangers and misadventures and roadblocks and barriers. But with the help of allies, seen and unseen animal and human animal. Eventually the hero emerges victorious in the end 
with gifts that they couldn't have acquired any other way. So that's a description of the hero's journey, which is also a description of every Marvel movie and and every work of fiction. And that is the the narrative underlying um, Lord of the Rings and all of and all of those things. So we expect that thick that fifth act, right? Like hard things happen and you have to demonstrate your growth from them. This idea that I mean, I don't even think that the hero's journey at its root is necessarily prescriptive. It's one way of telling a story. But the way that we have absorbed it is as a prescription, right? Sorry that crappy thing happened to you, but now you're on a journey. Look for the helpers. And if you look for the helpers, you're going to come out of this as a wiser, better human. I mean, this this got really cemented in the 80s and the 90s with... Um, the response to the AIDS epidemic. And that was the 80s, the 90s were sort of the highlight, the high years of you manifest your own reality with your thoughts. Yeah, The Secret, I think, came out in the 90s, didn't it? Yep. And you can hear your Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. Like all of this messaging about like, if you have a sty in your eye, it's because you have anger <laughs> issues and you're not seeing clearly. You just got to say, I love my mom and it'll go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to say, I see clearly through my anger and your medical issues will go away. Now, I say that really, with a really snarky tone of voice as a person who does actually believe that you can influence the relative health and wellness in your body by paying attention to your thoughts, not because thoughts are magical, but because of cortisol. The chemical cascade. Exactly. If you're working yourself into a tizzy, it impacts inflammation, which impacts the things in your mind. That is a far cry from your thoughts created your cancer. Your thoughts created HIV, right? And and the reason why I bring up the 80s and the 90s as sort of this confluence of um, mass illness, suffering, and death surrounded by a culture that was sort of newly magnifying you create your own reality, which dovetailed really nicely with um, AIDS as punishment for being gay. So there's this real confluence of this is all your fault. And if you somehow survive it, then you got the lesson that you needed to learn. And that whole punitive orientation to human existence, right? Like bad things happened either because you caused it or because you needed to learn a lesson. Like that is so deeply entrenched in us. I mean, this is part of puritanical culture. It's part of a, um, you know, like this is the basis of religion, right? Like don't fuck up or you're screwed forever and your family's also screwed. You get to the gates of hell and you don't even find out till you get there. That's the hard part. You have to die first. So it's a mystery. So just do as good as you can. Also, Santa will bring you more presents. If you're good, you won't be on the naughty list. Exactly. I mean, I get into this a little bit in my first book, and it's okay that you're not okay. Like the, which, you know, I, I say right in the beginning of the book, if you are currently grieving, please skip the first part of this book because it's about why the culture is so messed up. And that's not relevant to you right now. Like come back later if you want, but right now. You're grieving. You don't need this. Yeah. Like you don't need the deep dive into the <laughs> cultural historical reasons for pain avoidance. But, you know, if you think about um, why we're like that. So if we go back to um, like a small society with a leader and there is drought or famine in the land and there's only enough food for a certain amount of people. We know that the ruling class is going to get that. So this is sort of, you can see why it would be powerful for a ruler to say, 
the more you suffer, the more your reward will be in heaven, right? Because this way, everybody is starving. They're watching their children starve. At least there's a payoff of we're all getting into heaven because we're suffering so much. If you can turn somebody's attention to a later reward that is tied to an increase of suffering, then you don't, as a leader, have to fix inequality. You don't have to fix food shortages. You don't have to change anything about what you're doing if you can tell people that the more they suffer, the closer they are to God. Wow. That's so fascinating to think of that, how correlated that is to religion and how that's also correlated to socioeconomic structure. You know, I heard um, the finance or the deputy prime minister of Canada recently said that uh, it's good the gas prices are high because they remind us of the climate and how important it is to move to green energy which that's a whole other conversation, but I was like, wow, that's so dismissive of every, but in some way that the suffering was important to recognize the pain that the planet's going in. And sure, there is a recognition of where we're moving towards and the choices we make, but we can't just negate people's experiences and somehow turn them into acts of altruism or acts of faith, you know, in God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's turning human pain into the nobility of suffering. Like we have just got such a long human history of insisting on the nobility of suffering. The nobility of suffering, yeah. The more you suffer, the more human you are, the more gifts you learn, the more um, of use you can be to the rest of the world. Meanwhile, the people in these higher socioeconomic classes are not noble. They're noble, but they're not suffering, you know? Right. Who knows? Who knows? But there is a different form of suffering, of course. Absolutely. I mean, Matt and I used to have these conversations all the time, you know, the origin of religion, not the origin of any kind of God force or or force larger than ourselves, but the origin of religion is anxiety, right? Like before there is, before there's weather forecasting, before we have, you know, the six o'clock news with the weather report and we know that a hurricane is coming, people died all the time, right? Like there's a fire, there's a cold spell, there's a plague that goes through the village and we don't have antibiotics or, you know, hygiene or whatever, so that your existence and the existence of the people you care about is really precarious. So let's use this one as an example. I know I'm getting kind of like esoteric here, but whatever. Esoteric it up. Let's go. We'll roll with it for a second. Because I think this is really interesting in terms of human development. Why why are we the way that we are? But so let's say that you live in a, in a very small village several hundred years ago. So there's no, you know, like we don't understand the presence of germ theory. Like we don't understand any of that. And an illness goes through the whole village and kills off all the children except for like, you know, three or four families. Their kids seem to be okay. So that only looks like magic. You don't know about immune systems or... Maybe they had a cow or something that gave them cross immunity. Yeah. Who knows? So what do we do? We want to protect our kids. We want to protect our families. We don't want this to happen again. So we look at what that family did and we try to copy their behavior. Now, if that person whose family survived has sort of like delusions of grandeur or wants to be the leader, they're like, well, then you have to do exactly everything that I said. And if you don't do everything I say, the next time people die, you're going to die too. You have to be just like me or you will suffer. And if you're suffering, it's evidence that you don't really believe in me, that you're a traitor to the cause. Wow. So using shame. Yeah. 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah. Using shame. So like there, there is a fear of losing the people that we love. That is a reality of life. And from my perspective, so much of what we've built, so much of our 
moral code, our governments, our religion are about squashing or managing the fear of watching those we love die. How am I going to protect myself from this? I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, I'm going to put a pin in what I was just going to say for a second, but I, I just think that so much of what we've structurally built is a way to try to protect ourselves from pain. Yeah, I agree with that. It's not going to work. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work at all. <laughs> it doesn't work. And to monetize it, to monetize the protecting or minimizing of pain, which, you know, it, how do you think that um, correlates to sort of the messaging we've been sent about emotion in general? You know, I think of uh, the pharma industry and, and depression and anxiety and these these experiences and states that we have when we're not, you know, uh, there's many pathologies, of course, that, that can be life circumstantial and our lack of connection to our emotions, expression, all that kind of stuff. But I'm curious because I, I find the messaging of if you are depressed or if you are sad or if you are anxious, there's something wrong with you. And that probably runs in the chemical imbalance of your family. It's genetic, which was disproven long ago, but hey, um, that marketing message hasn't been corrected though publicly. And here's these drugs that will help you move out of these things. To me, that has really made the idea that grief or, or emotion that gets coded as negative is actually dysfunctional or unhealthy. And to me, I, I find... Because I remember they changed the bereavement clause in the DSM, that if you were bereaving, you now, before that was a clause that you didn't need to get treated, but then they removed that. And I thought, I had a friend who was going through bereavement and was a rat, a pharmaceutical rat, and he was pointing that out to me. Like he went into his doctor and the doctor was like, you're depressed. And here, take this quiz that Pfizer created that most often results in you needing their product. And he was like, yeah, of course I'm fucking depressed. My wife packed up her bags and left me. And when I came back from work, she was gone. Like, I don't need a drug. I need to deal with reality. And he was so pissed just at the way that he was treated in his pain. So, yeah, I'm curious what you think about all that and if you agree or not and all that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Team U right now. So there's <laughs> there's so, yeah, isn't that great? Uh, I like the, that, yeah. the experts back you up. <laughs> there's so much in what you just said. So I'm going to unwind some of it. So we absolutely have an idea that health is happiness and only happiness right? Being happy and content and always growing, you know, feeling good about your life, that that is the health ideal and anything less than that is is failing. Health is is synonymous with being happy. Now, this isn't a new thing. It's not something that the pharmaceutical companies cooked up. I mean, this predates so many things. I'm going to do a little historical tour here for just a second. If we go back to like the 19 teens, right? So 1918 flu epidemic in the States and the Blitz of London, right? Two events that caused wide-scale suffering and death, predominantly of younger people. Like my great-grandmother was killed, uh, died during the 1918 flu epidemic. I believe she was like 37, right? So two events that caused widespread suffering and death. The response of both the US government and the, the British government in different ways was, this is where we get keep calm and carry on, 
nothing happened, nothing to see. Please go back to work. Your patriotic duty right now is to not be sad, but to go back to work and um, be productive. Keep these machines moving. Keep these machines moving. Now is the time where we put the past behind us and celebrate our victories. And so basically like all of these emotions from watching all of these people suffer, please put them to one side and pretend they no longer exist because the healthy patriotic thing to do is to move on and do it quickly. Like a form of nationalism to do that. Yes. I mean, we go back to what I was talking about with like prehistory here of, you know, if you have a group of people that you need to work together in order to survive, you can't have them all sitting around being sad, right? Or or wandering off into the bushes to find an epiphany. Um, so they're the, the same ways, the sort of the same ways that we talk about like ADHD is a problem in kids, mostly because it makes a management problem for schools. Anything other than happiness and contentedness is a problem for, and I don't say this in a, in a negative way, but the machinery of life. Yeah, that's true. Right. Like workplace absenteeism. Exactly. Like get on and get with it. Get back to work. That's You'll work through it. Exactly. Stay busy. We have that really deeply ingrained in human culture across all cultures, right? That you can't sit down in your pain. You have to keep moving. That there is a version of health that you are always trying to reach for. And if you are not actively reaching for it, you're failing. Now, we have had, just in this recent incarnation, 50 plus years of that experiment, right? More than 50. Wait, how old am I? Like a long time. We have had decades of running the experiment of when somebody is in pain, let's get them out of it as fast as possible. Let's help them with medication. Let's talk to them about positive psychology. Let's have them look on the bright side. Let's make like all of their friends and family members try to make them feel happy again. Start a gratitude journal. Start a gratitude (laughs) journal. Like all of the gifts that your dead husband gave you. Like what have you learned? How have you grown as a human being? Like get out of whatever feeling you're having. That way of looking at the hard parts of being human has given us rising rates of suicidality, an exploding drug epidemic, right? The opioid epidemic is not, I mean, opiates are new, but drug addiction as an epidemic, not new. We've got, even before the pandemic, loneliness was considered a bigger public health risk than smoking. Why are people lonely? People are lonely because they can't say what's real for them without being corrected or told you should go talk to somebody. If I'm trying to feel connected with you and Every time I tell you that I'm having a rough day or that I'm feeling really sad, you tell me to look on the bright side and maybe I should go for a run to get some endorphins. That doesn't help me feel better. It tells me that I can't come to you with what's true and that's going to make me feel isolated and alone. So if we have epidemics of suicidality and depression and interpersonal violence and loneliness and all of the things that spiral out of loneliness, well, then maybe we need to look at what the fuck we're doing when people are in pain because telling them they shouldn't be in pain is not working. It's not working. I've never considered the, I mean, I've considered the idea that if you don't self-express, you will feel like not accepted for who you are because in the lack of self-expression that is occurring, but I've never to further that, I really love what you said that loneliness, I think we think of someone in solitary confinement or someone who doesn't have any friends or someone who is not part of a family or a community, right? 
maybe someone playing video games in their basement or, you know, like that conceptually is how we see it. Someone who can't find a relationship, blah, blah. But the idea that you can actually be immersed in a human system supported quote unquote by 10 people, a thousand people. But if in that system, you can't actually be yourself, you are an island that is probably surrounded by other islands. Part of this, though, makes me think is one of the ways that we survive in that, like when someone is expressing their grief and we're saying, just get on with it, but, you know, the response. I would imagine that requires sort of a level of disassociation from ourselves or rejection of that grieving part of ourselves. Like we're sort of, if normality is disconnection from the depth of emotionality and someone brings emotionality, they are now abnormal and the normal say get the normies, I think is the saying, say get back into the box. And but it's almost like collective disassociation, which I think really speaks to what you're saying, which is why there is man, it's like exactly perpetuating the same cycle of why there's addiction, uh material, you know, it's so easy to to sell to people who need things that they can find through this product rather than themselves or community. I'm not anti-medication. Medication saves lives. And the number of people who had a child die or a sibling die or a best friend die and they go to their doctor and the doctor prescribes antidepressants, like that is infuriating. I when I when I I had an amazing doctor, it's one of the only things I missed from living on the East Coast because I love that physician. But I went in to see her after Matt died and um, she had actually cleared an hour and a half for me, which never happens in managed care. She's like, I don't give a fuck. So, you know, she sat down with me and she's like, I need you to tell me what happened so that I understand how I can help you. So I told the story. I mean, this was very That's soon. Beautiful. Wasn't it? Like, that's gorgeous. She is so skilled. And this was like within a week or two after Matt died. So full shock, not coherent very well. And you told her the story and she sat still for a minute and she said, okay, this is going to suck. And this is going to suck for a lot longer than you would ever possibly imagine it would suck. I can't do anything about that. There is no medication that is going to make this okay and that is going to make this not suck. The things I can help you with are these. And then she listed things like, um, if you're having a really hard time sleeping, we can mess with medication for that. If you are having panic attacks, there's some stuff we can do to help your nervous system manage this a little bit better. Um, I know you don't eat when you're stressed out. I'm going to monitor your weight loss. And if I feel like you're getting into dangerous territory, we're going to have to start talking about ways to medically manage that, right? That was beautiful. She didn't come in and be like, you're too fucking sad. You need some Wellbutrin. But so many people who are grieving are met with the pharmaceutical wall. Yeah. What do you think that does to their grief? What do you think that does to their process? Oh, to their process, it makes them feel more alone, right? Because nobody understands. Nobody sees me. Huh. And more of like, this needs a drug rather than a friend. I think two things happen. One, if you're the kind of person who realizes that there's nothing wrong with you, you're in pain, <laughs> then you're more likely to be like, well, fuck it. I guess I'm not going to go see a therapist or go to my doctor. I'm not going to talk to anybody, which is what we just talked about creates epidemics of loneliness, right? Like nobody is going to see me or understand me. So I'm not going to, I'm going to stop reaching out. I'm going to stop looking for help because they don't get me. But there are so many people who have deeply internalized, deeply understood that their grief is a problem and that they are somehow not doing it right if they are still sad. Like this breaks my heart, 
right? That you take somebody whose daughter just died and they are, air quotes here, still sad six months later. They're having a really hard time um, like getting back into PTA with their surviving son and they're just like, they're not loving their job anymore. They're just kind of like the shine is off the world. If they've been reading the medical model, if they've been listening to the support of friends and allies, if they've been watching the movies, they will think that they should be over this by now. It has been six months. It has been six weeks. I shouldn't still be this wrecked by this. So they've internalized a faulty message and they think they're the problem. The reality is that the message is the problem. The system is the problem. So if you're going to your doctor and your doctor prescribes medication and you take medication and you, you're still sad you're still grieving, like you think you're the problem. Mm, like the medication didn't work. That's a failure of me. That's a failure of me. And the timelines, that that's interesting because I, you know, they talk about breakups that for every year together, it's a month. It's like, that's such a load of shit. Like who just did a study and, you know, like it's just a load of shit. Yeah. I mean, we can make numbers do anything, right? Like the, um, one of the, and, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but like one of the original studies around complicated grief took a hundred people over 75 who had had a partner, a spouse die within the last year or two years or something like that. I, I don't remember the specifics, but it's a group of people, elderly, by definition, elderly who had lost a spouse. And they went back at six months and they went back at a year and they were basically like, how you feeling? Right. And whatever it was, like 95% of the people said, I feel great. I'm fine. Okay, let's talk about that generation. Mm, the silent generation, right? Thank you, the silent Isn't generation. Is that what they're called? Yes, the yeah. silent generation. Um, they're very stoic. They were raised to not air your dirty laundry, to not talk about personal things, kind of one of the original good vibes only, although they wouldn't have used that language. So if you don't adjust for acculturation, if you don't adjust for the messages this person has internalized, your data is not reliable. I can go talk to 100 people right now and they'll tell you that five years later, they're still grieving. And my data will also be correct because I ask different questions. And you could provide a different safe space for that to, to be an experience. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you said earlier, um, basically like why, why do we get uncomfortable when somebody is sad near us? And I have some theories here. I mean, one, emotion is contagious, right? And I mean that in the best possible way. If you're some, if you're around somebody who's in a really good mood and your life has not been recently destroyed, you're going to feel a little bit buoyed by being around that person. If somebody is really angry and pissy and raging and you interact with them, you're probably going to feel pretty prickly for a bit, right? When you see somebody who is in pain, I think there is a part of our brains. I think there's a part of our limbic system and our nervous system that sees ourselves in that. That could so easily be me. That could so easily be my kid or my sister. And we start to feel with that person, which is, in my opinion, what we're designed to do. That is what our limbic systems do. We feel with each other. And we don't like that feeling. We don't like to be presented with how tenuous and fragile life is. I mean, this is what so many Eastern philosophies are built on turning to face the fleeting nature of existence. We don't like that. So instead of being able to recognize, wow, this could be me and that really hurts and I'm going to take care of myself around what just came up for me 
or I'm going to use that moment of shared humanity to be as supportive and present as I can to the pain in the room. Instead, some part of our brain goes, oh, fuck no. I am not going to feel this and I'm going to remove whatever it is that is making me feel this way. Now, this isn't conscious. This isn't just like nefarious jerk sauce here, but this is, <laughs> this is a term we'll just make up for right now. Jerk sauce. I like it. It's not like we do this. I mean, some people are intentional jerks. That's not who we're talking about. I'm talking about an unconscious impulse to distance ourselves from the pain of existence, the the fragility of existence, right? When we start to feel with somebody else, we want to have a way of saying, that's not me, right? This is why, um, you know, after Matt died, apparently there were a bunch of news articles. I only saw one and one was plenty. In the comment section under the article, there were people like, why did she let him go in the water? Why is she such an idiot? Why wasn't he wearing a life jacket? Like who wears a life jacket to go swimming? Nobody. But all of this like blame, shame, you brought it on yourself. You hear about this if somebody dies in a car accident. Well, were they, were they wearing their seatbelt? How fast were they going? Were they drinking? Like all of this, what did you do wrong to make this outcome? If we can identify what you did wrong, I would never do such things. I would never have gone swimming in a dangerous river. I would never have been um, trying to cross at a well-marked sidewalk, you know, in the middle of the day at lunch hour. Like everybody knows that people drive crazy at lunch hour, right? So that would never happen to me. There's this distancing that we do. And if we even like allow that like, okay, random shit happens sometimes. You, you do the best you can to be safe and sometimes things happen. If that happened to somebody I love, I would still be okay because I would never be as upset as that person. I would never be crying in public. I would never have to leave my job because the flashbacks are so bad. I'm okay. I'm safe. Everything we do in the face of somebody's pain is trying to convince ourselves that we are safe from that kind of pain. Everything. That's so interesting. In the inability to sit with or just hold it without the gift and the things we're talking about is having to sit with the reality that you could easily be in that chair or that could easily be your life, which I agree with you is true every time. Every time. We apply the binary to so much of human existence and, and binary is for math. It's not for humans. <laughs> I like that. I think we have this idea that you have two options, right? In your own grief or witnessing the grief of somebody else, like the healthy option is to cheer them up. The alternative is, you know, rocking in the basement wearing sackcloth for all eternity and and never rejoining life. Like those are your only two options. So there's this sort of rabid intensity trying to get somebody to cheer up or trying to get yourself to move past it if you've really swallowed that message that you shouldn't be sad for very long. Like there is a third option and it's where most humans live, right? People ask me how I'm doing now. Um, you know, the time that we're speaking is 13 years after Matt died. I have an amazing life. I'm good. And Matt's dead. That's never going to not suck. I'm never going to stop missing him or wishing he was here. He was an amazing force in the world. Like the world lost out on a lot when that man died, right? Both things get to be true. And I feel like this is true for so many people and would be true for so many more people if we were allowed that third option of not 100% recovered and happy and not 100% destroyed. Like if it was okay for us to be human and to have things hurt and still hurt 
I think everything would get a lot better. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot more self-acceptance. There'd be a lot more willingness to even explore the part of us that's not okay 13 years later or whatever time. You know, I remember a friend of mine's husband passed away suddenly. And about, I think it was like eight months later, she, or a year, I can't even remember, but it was, you know, whatever time she started dating someone and the people close to her husband who had passed, a lot of them were like, it's too soon. Like you clearly haven't grieved. And I was very conscious of just having a conversation with her about it because I was like, wow, that's such a projection of, like you were saying before that our idea of when you're supposed to be over something or through something or even what it looks like is how we think we would handle it. I think that's so, that's like the same moralization that occurs in religion. And, you know, like we started the conversation talking about. Exactly my point. It's a projection of hope of how I would handle it if this happened to me. I think it's also an outgrowth of our feelings of helplessness in the face of somebody's pain. I mean, I've said this before, this is not all people being jerks on purpose. Like we really do think our job is to help the people we care about feel better. So that impulse to comfort the people you care about, that's a really beautiful human impulse. I love it. I love that story for us. The tools that we have learned to deliver that care and deliver that, that support are wrong. The tools that we have learned are never going to get us where we want to go, right? We think that we are helping somebody by telling them to look for the gift or look on the bright side or move on or put the past behind you or think of the good times and they wouldn't want you to be sad or, you know, I'm sorry that you were in a car accident, but think of the Paralympian you could be, right? Like all of this stuff we do to try to get people to embrace the light. We're never going to get the kind of relationships where we want, where we feel seen and supported using the tools that tell us to erase somebody's truth for them, right? So I really do see this as like, we're not screwed here. Like there are skills, there are tools that we can use. There are ways that we can learn to communicate and relate that actually let us deliver our good intentions. If I have a really beautiful intention to help you feel supported, and I'm telling you to look on the bright side and cheer up and think of all the ways you've grown, if you're not feeling supported, I'm the one who's doing it wrong. Not the failure of the person, yeah. Exactly. It's on me to say, you know, here, here's my impulse. Here's what I want to do to make you feel better. Does that feel better? Does it help you to look on the bright side? Well, no, Fantasial Megan helper here. Like, no, it doesn't. It actually makes me feel like you're not listening to me and it's not okay for me to be sad. What would help? How can I support you? Exactly. You need to, you need to put your need to be the savior, to be the best supporter ever. You need to put that to the side and let the person who's in pain lead you. Now that is not always like, tell me what you need. We don't want to put a whole bunch of emotional labor on somebody who's already struggling. I want you to slow down your impulse to help. Check things out, right? I know when I'm having a hard time after a breakup, um, I was talking with somebody the other day and she's like, every time I've had a breakup, I like to watch like that movie or that series Cheaters so that I can remind myself that like things like other people have had it really bad. The one where they bust them. Yeah. So she's like, whenever a friend has a breakup, my first impulse is to like do a cheater's marathon. And I'm like, that's fantastic. I love that. And a good way to present that is, so I really want to be supportive for you right now. And what I would do is this and this and this. Does that sound like anything you'd be interested in? 
ending with that question, would that feel helpful for you, is beautiful. Just add that question, right? Because every person is different. Every loss is different. Every love story is different. And, you know, when I'm talking about grief, I'm not just talking about grief related to death, although that is where I started talking about this, but we're talking about the grief of existence, right? The hardship involved in being a human being who feels things. Job loss is grief. Not getting the house of your dreams is grief. Now, you don't want to conflate that, you know, you don't want to like hear that somebody's best friend just died of an accidental overdose because fentanyl is everywhere and say, I know just how you feel. I got passed over for promotion. Like, no, 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 do not do that. (laughs) Not same, not the same. What I really encourage people to do here is to expand your idea of what grief is, because when you do that, you have a lot more opportunities to play with and practice listening and being supportive in ways that the person at the center of that pain actually feels supportive, right? The example that I give here is, you know, like a a fire drill. We do fire drills so that in the event of a real emergency, you're not having to learn new things. It's habit, right? I don't want you to learn how to be a stellar listener and supporter after your niece is killed at her elementary school because we refuse to enact gun laws, right? I don't want you to have to learn these skills then. I want you to have been practicing them on really low stakes things. Like you go to the coffee shop and you ask the barista how their day is going. And they're like, not that great. The dog was up every two hours last night throwing up. And that meant I missed my bus. And then my boss yelled at me. Normally what we say is like, well, at least the sun is shining. Or I hope you have something great planned for after work. You missed your practice opportunity because the practice in that moment is just to hear it and say, that sounds really difficult. I'm sorry that's happened for you. That is a life-changing and day-altering moment. When you, when you take the opportunity to practice being a student, it's like a student of grief, you of know, course. a student of support. How do you hold the bridge, you know, in the conversation about allowing, you know, supporting someone in their process. How do you hold the bridge of like, say someone finding out, you know, via this podcast, for example, listening to you and being like, wow, that is how I want to hold my grief or that's, you know, so there's through your existence and, and what you're, you, the way you speak about this, I would imagine a lot of people feel witnessed in their process. And then also how, you know, all the work you have created because seeing that there was an absence of this conversation, how do you hold the bridge between that hope, like that possibility that someone sees in you or sees in um, what they might even call the gifts that they might garner from the experience without negating the experience or negating the tragedy or what it might be? Does that make sense? I think so. I think what you're asking me is, how do you reach for a good life after living what you've lived? Yeah. Like how do you do that? And like you want your friend or your sister to say like, there's still a good life or there's still, because I think of the addict that finds hope through seeing someone who's moved through what their addiction is, the possibility, like the actual hero's outcome, there is something that makes us reach for that in the right time and maybe the right place and the right words. Yes. Ooh, you just, you landed on it. Oh, sweet. (laughs) We very often um, weaponize or prescribe things like hope. You're 
dad wouldn't want you to be sad. There's such a beautiful life for you. And and what what did he see in you that you can achieve now for him? Like we just like we're, we're such twisted creatures. <laughs> we really are. Really, just truly. So I I think I'm really curious about hope, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because very often I think hope is a very transactional thing. You hope for an outcome. Um, hope is future oriented. So two things I want to say about this from a supporter perspective. Remember that your job is not to talk somebody out of their pain. It's to help them feel supported inside it. You don't have to make them feel better. You need to make them feel loved. Those are two completely different sets of actions. As a supporter, as a therapist, as a provider, as a doctor, as anybody on the outside of it, you can ask things like, what would a good life feel like for you knowing what you know now? I mean, this is how I end my podcast every week is like knowing what you know, what you've lived, what you've witnessed. What does hope look like? What does a good life feel like for you in this moment? I think asking that question of somebody that you care about or somebody you're working with is a really wonderful question because you are not putting your ideas of a good life or what hope looks like onto them. You're not making them play dress up in your dreams. I love that as a question. I think there's also something very powerful in personal agency um, big fan of sovereignty. It's not that when you're experiencing something difficult, you're supposed to be sad, right? Like again, no binaries here. Like just because I say happiness is not the goal, constant crushing sadness and anxiety is also not the goal. The work here is to build an inhabitable, inhabitable life, to build a life that feels beautiful and useful and supportive to you, whatever that looks like. It is a very different question if as a grieving person, I ask myself, what does a good life look like to me? It's a very different question if I ask myself than if you come to me and demand a description of a good life so that you can then hold me to that dream and make me achieve it. Like what goals are you going to work on this week? What goals have you got? I've got a goal (laughs) of not punching you in the face when you ask me what my goals are. But I think like, I think there's also something to be said here about right timing because I think, you know, going back to what I said earlier about you see somebody in great pain and you feel helpless and you want to do something to make it better. Jumping to an imagined outcome sometime in the future. Like that's a way we relieve our own anxiety. I mean, give you, give you an example here. I knew somebody once who, you know, a, a young guy, serial entrepreneur had just done a round the world honeymoon with his new partner. They went swimming and we'll use another, we'll close with another swimming analogy here, a swimming story, um, dove into a pond and came out completely paralyzed. Right. He's still in the ICU, not really sure if he's going to survive or not. And he had people coming in and like showing him videos of the Paralympics and telling him what an athlete he was going to be. And he's coming to me and saying like, I don't know what the hell just happened. Like, I don't even know if I'm going to survive this, but all anybody wants to tell me about is this future that I might have if I work hard enough, but nobody's willing to sit in the room with my body being completely broken. That's what I'm talking about, about right timing. When somebody is standing in the hot smoking mess of their life, that is not the time that you pick out wallpaper. It is not. So you got to look at where is my person. And, you know, a way that you can check is to ask. It's awkward, but my temptation here is to start talking about what you still believe in and what brings you even the tiniest measure of joy. Like that's my go-to, but I feel like that's wrong right now. Is it feel helpful for you to talk about the future or does it not feel helpful? 
right? Our impulsive ways of helping are not inherently wrong. What is inherently wrong is making the assumption that we are correct and going ahead, charging ahead with the prescription before you even understand what the person is wrestling with. And I'll give you one more example of that. I said earlier that the night of Matt's funeral, more than one person came up to me and said, don't worry, you're young, you're smart, you're beautiful, you'll find somebody else again really soon. Now, the presumption inherent in that is that my biggest worry was that I would be alone. I wasn't worried about that. They were solving a problem for me that I was not having. And they did that because they wanted to make me feel supported. A much better thing to do, a much more skilled thing to do would be to say, man, my impulse is to tell you that you'll find somebody else, but I feel like that's probably not the problem you're wrestling with right now. Are you worried about it? To which I would have been like, I don't want to talk about this right now. I'd like go away. But I mean, there's there is something about you don't have to be perfect at this. I think a lot of people don't say anything because they they don't want to do it wrong. The most wrong thing you can do is nothing because you feel awkward, you feel helpless, so you don't say anything because you don't want to make it worse. Lead with your awkward. Lean right into that awkwardness. Being human is freaking awkward. Leverage that shit. How does one know when they're in the process of grief? And I don't know. I'm guessing there's an answer here, but I have no clue. How does one know that they're doing grief well or like moving through the process? First, I I would say um, remember that our cultural and medical model ideals of doing grief well are wrong. It is not like you see in the movies. It is not what the APA says it should be over and done in six months or six weeks or whatever the hell number they made up. So if you are comparing yourself to an external ideal, the external ideal is probably wrong. Then I would say that is a great question for each person to ask themselves. What would it mean to live this well? What would it mean to survive this in ways that I feel proud of? What does a good life look like to me? What does feeling well look like to me, right? Like, I think these are questions that each individual can answer for themselves. I don't think it's something that can come from the outside because you're not going to reach happy and content. I'm never going to be glad that Matt's dead. Like, I'm already failing the cultural storyline by even referencing the man 13 years later. So each person needs to think about knowing what I know, living what I live, knowing that the life that I wanted and I most longed for and was pretty damn happy with is no longer an option. What is the most beautiful life I can live given what is mine to live? And what are my signs that I'm doing okay? What are my signs that I'm not doing so well? Now, this is even outside of what a good life looks like, right? Like for me, I know that I'm not doing very well in general, has nothing to do with Matt or not Matt, but like if I'm snapping at the dog, I know something's wrong, right? Like my dog is an angel. She doesn't need to be snapped at. But if I'm snapping at the dog, it either means that I haven't eaten, I didn't sleep well, or there are too many demands on my time and I'm feeling really prickly. I know that if the dog does something inappropriate or annoying and I'm able to redirect and not get ruffled by it, it's a pretty good chance that I'm doing good life hygiene for myself, that I've eaten, that I'm drinking water, (laughs) that I'm not overburdened with things. It's more of that, right? Like, it's not that because grief is normal, it's not that there's nothing you can do with it, right? It's how am I going to take care of myself in the really hard moments so that things don't get worse? When did you have an answer to that? 
the questions about like, what does a good life look like? Like for you, when could you even explore that question? That's a really good question. I think that the, the scale and the scope changed all the time. I think that on the Riverside was the first time, not consciously, but the first time I asked myself that question by quitting my job. Given that this just happened, what are you going to do? I'm going to quit my fucking job is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to entertain idiots is what I'm going to do. I mean, I definitely was in the habit of asking myself what I needed and responding to the best of my ability to what I needed. Like I did know that before this happened. I had some skills, but that question has definitely changed over and over and over. I mean, I think it's a great question to ask yourself every day, especially when you're in the hot surface of the sun of your pain, whatever that pain is, like what would surviving this well look like this morning? What do I need right now in order to withstand this? Because you can't think about the future, especially when you've had something random and atypical and and not average happen to you. Like faith in the future is really flimsy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's so true because something totally out of your control happened, which, I, you know, I think is so much why we become so overtly trying to control things after things like that happen or double down on our belief in God or you know, something to try to make it all make sense when it just doesn't, it just doesn't. And that actually accepting that is where the exhale can occur. Yes. I think it's where you can ask real questions and offer real support when you acknowledge that. I mean, it's one of the core lines in the book, right? Some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried. Well, how are we going to carry this? I can't make this into a gift. I can't make this into a shiny silver lining made for TV special for you where everything works out in the end because sometimes things don't work out. How are we going to live in that? How are we going to connect inside that? How are you going to care for yourself knowing that we don't know what this afternoon is going to bring? This afternoon is neutral. How am I going to live in neutral in the best way I can? I think about the aspiration of creating family, community, and village from the perspective of that of like how do I help you carry what you're carrying right now Megan this has this conversation has been such a gift thank you so much for for sharing all of the things that you've learned through your process you are so welcome for the people listening where can they find more of you where can they find your books uh, you know your podcast as well all the things. Okay. So podcast is here after with Megan Devine. This season is really special and I really want people to listen to it. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can follow Refuge and Grief, which is me on all of the social platforms. You can go to refugeandgrief.com, which is like the eternal archives of all the blog posts about everything ever. Um, If you are a clinician or a medical provider or you work with grieving people in some capacity or you work with humans because really everybody's grieving, um, check out megandivine.co. There are a couple of trainings that are open now for registration. But yeah, I'm, I'm everywhere. Come looking. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you and your time. You are so welcome. Thanks for telling me I'm funny. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.